Hello and welcome to the We Need Water podcast. My name is Michael Brent and I'm the Water Resources Manager for Cascade Water Alliance in King County, Washington. Cascade is a municipal water provider supplying drinking water to more than 380,000 residents. I'm glad you're here. I want you to care about water and make it your personal mission to become a steward of this incredible resource. Today we're going to discuss an important topic relating to water quality. It's something called PFAS, and it's a type of contaminant that is being found in drinking water supplies uh, all around the country. You may have heard uh, something about this in the news uh, recently, and we're very fortunate. We have a wonderful guest with us, Kelly Smalling. Kelly is a research hydrologist with the U.S. Geological Survey, New Jersey Water Science Center. She has a bachelor's degree in chemistry and biology from the University of Alabama in Huntsville and a master's degree in public health from the University of South Carolina. Kelly has been with the USGS since 2004. Prior to that, Kelly was a research assistant at Skidaway Institute of Oceanography in Georgia. Much of her nearly 25-year career has focused on the potential health risks of contaminant mixtures to human health and the environment, including fish and wildlife. Throughout her career, she has worked with homeowners concerned about the safety of their drinking water, amphibians in remote mountain ponds, pollinators and agricultural landscapes, freshwater fish in streams and lakes across the country, and estuarine fish from both coasts. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Great. I'm glad you're here. So get us started. Uh, What is PFAS? So PFAS. uh, So per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. It's a mouthful. So we just go with PFAS. Um, So what they are, they're a group of um, over about 12,000 different man-made chemicals Um, That number tends to grow as we learn more about them. Um, And they've actually been used um, since the 1940s. And you've probably heard of them in the news. They've been dubbed forever chemicals. Um, Mm. And they've been dubbed that because they don't easily degrade in the environment. And unfortunately, they're found pretty much everywhere, even in our bodies. Mm. So, I mean, that's the first key thing, I guess. We're not talking about a single chemical or contaminant, like people are used to hearing about lead in the drinking water, for example. So this is a a very large family of chemical compounds found in a whole bunch of things. So where where specifically uh, do these chemicals come from? So again, they're man-made, so you aren't going to find them in the environment. Um, They're not naturally produced. Um, So what they're, they're used to make products stick resistant to stains, Mm -hmm. greases, as well as water resistant. So they are actually found in a lot of everyday products, um, including some clothing, like Mm. rain gear. Um, If you're a fisherman, they're they're in waders, a lot of the Gore-Tex waders. I just bought a new pair of waders. Well, that's great to know. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, we've actually asked, because in some of our... um, Sometimes we're in these remote areas and we don't want to introduce PFAS into the water itself. So we've asked, you know, unless you go with the hardcore rubber waders that get really hot in the summer, 
we're we're stuck with the the PFAS yeah. waders right now that have PFAS in them. Um, so they're also in food packaging, um, nonstick cookware, mm-hmm. and then there's specific sources of PFAS, like certain industries where um, PFAS are used as part of the manufacturing process, mm-hmm. um, as well as you probably heard a lot about aqueous film forming foams or AFFF. Mm-hmm. They're used um, to fight fires, uh, but hot fires, like from military inter- installations, airports, as well as um, other fire training facilities. This is the the spray foam yes. that you see firefighting crews uh, using yes. to suffocate a fire. Specifically on oil and gas fires. So they okay. they tend to be used when the fire gets really hot. We haven't, we've gotten questions about forest fires um, and we haven't found anything yet that um, shows that PFAS are actually used in those kind of firefighting foams. It's, mm-hmm. it's more those for the, the, um, the really hot oil and gas fires. Okay. Well, if... The chemicals are used in things like uh, food production or food packaging, uh, cookware, things like that. Um, you might be tempted to think they must be safe, but maybe not. So um, from a USGS perspective, um, we are an unbiased science agency and we don't have a health mandate. But there have been a lot of studies out there that have... Um, started to think about the human health impacts of PFAS. And what we know just from other studies is that there are several, again, of those 12,000, we only know about a couple of them, that are considered a concern to human health. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of these PFAS, uh, specifically PFOS and PFOA, these are the what we're calling legacy PFASs. They were used in the 40s. They've been voluntarily phased out. Um, but these guys, they're also got a, they're what we call long chain PFAS. So they have a lot of carbons and a lot of carbon fluorine bonds. Um, and some of these have actually been linked to um, effects on development, um, mm. immune disorders, as well as certain types of cancer. Okay. So some uh, good reasons to think that uh, they can be harmful to human health. Um, yeah. So this would, since, since this uh, causes problems uh, to the environment, this would be under the jurisdiction of the U.S. EPA? Yes, it is under EPA's jurisdiction, yes. And how are they responding to the issue now? So what's been really interesting is, you know, from a kind of a, a, a non-regulatory government agency, which is that's what the USGS is, mm-hmm. it's been interesting to kind of watch how the regulations regarding PFAS have changed over time. And because there's such a huge public attention that's being put on PFAS, Regulations in the U.S. as well as throughout the globe, they're they're changing really rapid rapidly and are, are becoming increasingly more strict, uh, particularly at the state level. Um, so, what's important to note with PFAS is right now there are still no enforceable national drinking water standards. So, 
PFAS is not regulated by the EPA nationally at this point. But there are some states like the like New Jersey, the state where I'm from, um, we do have certain regulations for certain PFAS. Um, but EPA is moving in that direction. Um, so I believe it was 2021 EPA released what they called their um, strategic roadmap for PFAS. It's kind of their vision of how they want mm. to deal with PFAS. They, it, in that document, they're setting timelines for certain actions, um, as well as um, committing to, to policies to safeguard public health. So as part of this roadmap, in 2023, um, I believe it was this year in March, they actually proposed drinking water regulations for PFOA and PFOS at um, four nanograms per liter or four parts per trillion. Um, and then they also proposed to regulate a mixture of four other PFAS, which mm -hmm. is really neat because um, we know that when we're exposed to chemicals, we're exposed to mixtures. Mm -hmm. And EPA tends to regulate by individual contaminant. And so this is the first time that they're actually figuring out a way to regulate a mixture of four PFAS. They're, they're reacting to the potential for synergistic effects between the various types of chemicals. They are. Um, and they know that, you know, they, they, nobody really knows is how PFAS are work, you know, the effects of multiple PFAS. But the fact is that when you drink a glass of water or something that has PFAS, you tend to have more than just one. Again, because we go back mm -hmm. to what we talked about at the beginning, it's more than just one chemical. It's a suite of a number of different chemicals. Okay. Uh, four parts per trillion. That just sounds <laughs> like a fantastically um, small amount, uh, which would suggest that, uh, you know, there there really is a potential for uh, negative effects on human health. Yes. And so, so that four parts per trillion, trillion is the maximum contaminant level. So the MCL, that is an enforceable value um, that at some point when these become final, if that sticks, um, drinking water treatment plants are going to have to regulate to that level. Um, what EPA also does when they set an MCL for a lot of contaminants, particularly ones that are considered um, known or potential carcinogens, they also establish what they call a maximum contaminant level goal or MCLG. And what the MCLG is, it's, it's, they, take, it's, they take out um, cost and whether or not you can actually treat for it. And they set a precedent. So the MCLG it, for PFOA and PFOS is zero. Mm -hmm. So what that means is, is that for the most vulnerable subpopulations like infants and children, the elderly, the immunocompromised, um, there's no known safe level of PFOA and PFAS. Okay. Uh, what about the industry? Are, are the, have they uh, changed uh, their operations or the kinds of chemicals that they're producing? Uh, anything different there? Well, so 
and I don't know exactly the timeline of this, but I do know that as we I mentioned before, the those legacy PFAS, PFOA and PFOS, um, they have been voluntarily uh, taken off the market. Mm. Uh, they've been replaced by other PFAS, but what the replacement PFASs are supposed to be um, shorter chain. Um, and the idea is that if they're shorter chain, they have the potential to break down easier. So maybe they aren't as persistent as some okay. of these longer chain compounds. Um, and then at some point in the future, those AFFFs, I believe they have to be PFAS free. Okay. I think that's the next, the next kind of, um, piece of this is that the idea is to start, start producing, uh, AFFFs that don't have any PFAS. Okay. Uh, are you familiar with uh, treatment technologies for water supply anyway to remove PFAS? So that's kind of outside of my area of expertise, but I do know that e for, for the homeowner, EPA mm -hmm. has a great website that has tons of information on what you can do inside your home. And I know from listening to the news that folks are working on these, you know, treatment the, the ability to kind of destroy PFAS. So it would be something that they would hope to scale up to be able to um, get that in place at, say, like a drinking water treatment plant. But okay. I don't know what the timeline of that is going to be. And, right. you know, a lot of, there are going to be a number of drinking water treatment plants, particularly in, in rural areas or disadvantaged communities that are, are going to have probably issues affording technology like that. Yes. Well, uh, your organization, the United States Geological Survey, recently completed a report. That's, that's why you're able to, yep. uh, <laughs> to talk about all this. <laughs> what, why did the USGS undertake this uh, study in the first place? What, what was the driver there? So the USGS has been working on PFAS for, for several years now. Um, but this kind of large study came about apart because in so in 2020 um, Congress has a National Defense Authorization Act and what that did was it basically told the USGS to do several things related to PFAS so it, it suggested that we take funding that we get from Congress and, and work on a, the PFAS problem um, so what we did internally is um, our leadership assembled a team of experts, and we developed uh, this strategic vision for PFAS. So it was used as a way to talk to the rest of the USGS on, on what we should be thinking about uh, for PFAS. And as part of that vision and, and part of kind of the discussion with the NDAA was that um, we really needed to understand PFAS exposure in drinking water. Um, but to do that, to really adequately address exposure, um, you need to get into people's homes. You need to get mm -hmm. at the tap because that's where exposure is actually happening. And most of the data that we have on PFAS is um, from the drinking water treatment plants because most states and, and federal monitoring programs, that's where they monitor at the drinking water treatment plant. Um, so what's unique about this study is we focus specifically on collecting water directly 
from a homeowner's tap. And that's where it actually occurs. Um, and the other piece that's lacking in all of the, the state and federal monitoring data is private wells. So we wanted to emphasize private wells. These are self-supplied. Um, they're not regulated by the EPA. Um, and they tend to be monitored at the discretion of the homeowner. And most people don't know this, but there are about 40 million people in the U.S. that are on private wells. Um, that's about 13 to 15% of our population. And they don't have any information on the quality of their drinking water. Mm -hmm. uh, fascinating. Uh, so how many, how many different homes did you visit? How many uh, different uh, states were you, were you doing your research in? So we were able to um, get data from all 50 states, including the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. So this is a large national uh, reconnaissance of, of PFAS at the tap. Um, and because we needed a lot of data points, um, for most of the data, we didn't actually go out and collect the information. Um, we used kind of a, we just call it our, our phone tree that just kind of mm -hmm. expanded and grew. Um, you know, we just kind of reached out to people, had people reach out to people and, you know, until we got enough samples in each state. Um, and we would send people this little kit. It included exactly what you needed to collect your sample um, and instructions. And then we asked them to, and a FedEx return label, we asked them to send it back to us. I think we got between 85 and a 90% response rate, mm -hmm. which was fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, and then we combined this information um, with data that we'd actually been collecting since 2016. And that's how we got over 700 different um, samples throughout the US. Okay. Uh, so what did you find? So as I mentioned, private wells are really important um, and we don't have a lot of information on that. So we tried to prioritize collecting uh, from private wells. So this was actually the first study um, on PFAS in tap water to really compare uh, private wells and public supply on the broad scale across the country. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I think if you've been listening to the news, you heard the 45% number. Um, so what this this study uh, suggested is that based on our data and our models, um, at least 45% of the nation's tap water could have one or more uh, types of PFAS. Um, and what we found as well with our data set is that the concentrations of PFAS, as well as the types or numbers of PFAS that we detected, they're very similar between private wells and public supply which I think is important because it could potentially give private well users a little more information. It's not going to be that one-to-one -one relationship, but say like you're on a public supply and, and your friend is on a private well, but you're getting your water from the same areas. They could use the information that you get from your um, public water supply and try to understand, well, could I potentially have PFAS in my water? Do I need to go get it tested or do I want to get it tested? Um, so that kind of gives private well users even more information than I think they had previously. Mm -hmm. um, and the last piece of this is kind of where PFAS was detected. Um, 
So we know that it comes from sources or industry. Um, a lot of industries in urban areas. So PFAS were more frequently observed in our samples that were collected in, in urban areas, as well as areas um, near potential sources of PFAS, as like as we mentioned, airports, industry, wastewater treatment plants. Um, and lastly, we, we, we produce this really great map um, and it gives you kind of an idea of where the potential hotspots for PFAS are. So where you're seeing PFAS a lot and then areas in the country where you're just not seeing PFAS. So areas like the Great Plains, the Great Lakes, all along the eastern seaboard, we've got a lot of people. It's, there's a lot of industry as well as um, the central and southern California regions were real hotspots for PFAS. Mm. But the Pacific Northwest um, and, the, and the northern plains we didn't see a lot of PFAS. Hmm. Well, it's it seems it's interesting. It seems a bit counterintuitive that so many rural private wells would be finding PFAS as well. Uh, I would assume that many of those places are not so close to historically uh, industrial areas. Right, and that is what we're seeing. So the the more rural private wells and the more rural public areas on public supply, we didn't, we saw less PFAS. But okay. you have to remember that there's also private wells in urbanized areas. Sure. Um, I live in New Jersey and I'm on a private well. Mm. Um, and so there's a lot of people that are in urban areas that are also on, on private wells. So um, basically in the, the rural areas, our private wells and our public supply, they were pretty similar. And we didn't see a lot of PFAS. Okay. Well, what are the next steps in terms of research? So as I mentioned, we've been doing tap water work in people's homes since 2016. So that work is going to continue. Um, we're going to continue to focus our work on private wells, again, because they don't have that information. Um, and our tap water work includes hundreds of different contaminants, including PFAS. So that's going to that's gonna continue. Um, we're also working with this data and other folks to try to build some models to actually predict PFAS exposure um, in, in a lot of the areas of the country where we don't have that kind of monitoring data. Um, and then outside of drinking water, um, again, the USGS has got tons of folks working on PFAS. Um, we've got studies focused on fate and transport. So what happens to it in the environment? How does it, does it break down? How does it break down? How does it move? Um, we have a lot of ecological studies. So we really want to understand not only um, exposure to people, but exposure to uh, fish and wildlife, um, trying to understand how it accumulates. Um, and then what the effects are. Um, and then lastly, we're also working to continue to develop methods for PFAS. Um, so we need more sensitive methods because if you're going to get an MCL down to four parts per trillion, you got to sure be sure your instruments can get below that. Mm. So that's so, kind of some of the information that we're working sure. on, but there's, I'm sure there's more. <laughs> but there's a lot left to be done for sure. Yes, there's a lot left to be done. There's a lot left to learn. So we'll just keep keep plugging at it. 
Well, what should people take away from this discussion? What's most important for them to know about PFAS? Um, so I think, I think this discussion has been really great because um, we know that PFAS are everywhere um, and more and more studies are really showing how often they're found in things that we consume every day. Um, our drinking water, I think there was a study that came out recently on kale, organic kale. Um, so we're hearing a lot about it. And I, I really think that this information sometimes can be really overwhelming. <laughs> um, but I, I think what ha what's really great about studies like these and, and this kind of conversation is it's giving people information. So it's giving mm -hmm. them a place to start and it's giving them, giving folks the ability to kind of start thinking about their own personal risk. So we know risk is really personal. I might not care. I, there may be, you know, I may be wor more worried about being hit by a car than drinking PFAS, but it gives people a place to start. It gives people a, a way to think about risk. Um, and also if, so if they, if the average American is really concerned and they have deemed that this is important to them, um, I would encourage them to take a look at studies like this, get informed again, evaluate their own personal risk, and then reach out to their local health officials. That's what they're there for. Ask them about PFAS. Um, ask them about testing. Ask them about treatment. Um, and just, you know, kind of just continue to stay on top of the situation. Well, I eat a lot of organic kale. so I'm, <laughs> I do too. <laughs> I'm going to be paying close attention to this issue. Um, Kelly, do you want to uh, tell people where they can find the uh, report of your research? Um, we do have an interactive dashboard. If you Google um, PFAS, interactive dashboard, USGS, um, you'll get this really great tool. And you can zoom in and, and see if we detect, if we sampled in your area, if we detected anything in your area. And it also has links to all the data. So if you really are a, a, a data geek and really want to go mine the data, you can do that. And then it also has a link to the, to the paper. Excellent. What do you most enjoy about your job? <laughs> That's a really tough question. Um, I enjoy most things about my job. I honestly didn't think I would enjoy this, the communication uh, broadly outside of the scientific community. But this has been um, a really great experience for me. Um, I've really been enjoying talking to folks, um, talking to your listeners, talking to the public about PFAS, um, and, and kind of what our science means. So that's been a lot of fun. Um, I'm now having to get back to my day-to-day -day job of managing projects and, and writing papers. And I think the writing part of it is probably the most fun. And occasionally when I do get to get out into the field, that's lovely. Wonderful. But those days are few and far between at this point. <laughs> I understand that. Well, thank you very much, Kelly. Uh, this is fantastic information. I appreciate you taking the time to, to share with us. Oh, no problem. I really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for your interest in, in, and for inviting me. And thank you all for your time today. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you did, please like and follow us on the social 
You can also find helpful information about Cascades Water Conservation Programs at cascadewater.org. Have a great day, and remember, we need water.